Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We are in Wyoming this week. Yes. And let me tell you, it was tough finding a story in Wyoming because, like I said, very you know few people in this state. Yeah, sparsely populated, sparsely populated. I will say you will have better luck finding a uh, paranormal story. Well, that's good. I had to. I had to pick. I had two very good options, and I and I selected the one that seemed most Wyoming to me. Very nice. And you know, I tried to say sparsely populated when I was saying that earlier, and um, the word densely populated just kept coming into my head, and I was like, "That's not right. That's not right. Don't say it. <laughs> you want the opposite." Like no brain, no. Exactly. Well, I guess I can dive into some fun facts about the great state of Wyoming. Um, oh, please do. All right, let's get warmed up. So the word Wyoming, let's start there. Did you know that that's actually a Lenape word? I figured it might be. I figured you, you, I could see you kind of going that direction. I had no idea. But apparently the Lenape word, Michuwanami ing, which means at the big plains, is where the name Wyoming comes from. It was first used to describe the Wyoming Valley in Pennsylvania, and then settlers who eventually came to the territory that become Wyoming used the name because it aptly described the state of Wyoming. Huh. That's awesome. Yeah. So I know you already touched on the fact that it is sparsely populated. Uh, interesting thing. So Wyoming, which became the 44th state on July 10th, 1890, today is the 10th largest by area, but with a population of only 580,000 residents in its almost 98,000 square mile area. That's crazy because like i mean like five hundred thousand is like the size of like a big city i know right so like to put it in perspective like the smallest state by area is of course rhode island and the area of rhode island is only 1212 square miles but it's home to around over a million people so that's like in my head i'm like that's hilarious that the tiniest state has like over a million people and like one of the largest states <laughs> has a little only slightly more than half a million. I'm like, okay, all right, cool. Oh my God, yeah. Another fun fact about Wyoming that I was like, oh, this is interesting, but it makes sense when you think about what's actually in Wyoming, is that the United States government actually owns almost half of the land in Wyoming. About 48% of the land is owned by the U.S. government. And that includes national forests and parks like Yellowstone, the National Grasslands, and the Air Force Base that is in Wyoming's capital. Awesome. More fun stuff about Wyoming. All right. I think most people, if they remember their middle school civics class, knows that Wyoming was the first state to grant women over the age of 21 the right to vote. Uh, they did it all the way back in 1869. So what what is that like mm, 30, like 50 years before women across the country had universal suffrage? I always found that to be a weird term. Suffrage. Women's suffrage. Women's yeah. suffrage. It has a, it has a very uh, aggressive ring to it. I won't lie. It does. Um, a lot of the history articles I read about Wyoming had a couple of different reasons as to why Wyoming was so eager to let the ladies in on the whole voting thing. Uh, part of it had to do with that, that there was a genuine conviction that women should have the same rights as men, which is good on you, Wyoming. 
There's also the desire to attract new settlers to the territory by making it seem very like progressive and modern compared to some of the other Western states. And some legislators who approved the bill that granted women the right to vote said they did it mistakenly believing that the bill didn't have enough traction to actually pass. So (laughs) they thought it was a long shot and it didn't hurt to vote yes anyway, but jokes on you, bro. Jokes on you. I think I heard that somewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The official motto of Wyoming. Do you know what it is, Eden? Um, or what the state nickname is? Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, their official motto is equal rights, and its nickname is the Equality State. Both in reference to women's su- su- suffrage. Yeah. So there you go. That makes sense. I mean, lean into it, I guess. Uh, what else is fun about Wyoming? Well, uh, Yellowstone, the nation's first national park, is in Wyoming. It was established in 1872, and it hosts nearly 4 million visitors every year. They come all over the world, from all over the world to see the natural beauty in Yellowstone, and of course, check out the Geyser Old Faithful. It's kind of just like Montana and the fact that it's like, really big on the touristy stuff and then not really big on the residents. Yeah, yeah. It is very, very similar. Very similar. I want to say it's maybe a little bit warmer in Wyoming. <laughs> like a little bit, but not by much. A little bit. Yeah, because it's not as far north, but Montana's basically Canada. Yeah, basically. Um, So Yellowstone also is very interesting because it has a huge in unique ecosystem, and that includes over 300 species of birds, 67 species of mammals, 16 species of fish, five different species of amphibians, and five distinct reptile species that all live within the park, um, including Wyoming's official state animal, which is the bison. Okay, I can see that. I did not know that. Yeah, I think it makes sense. I feel like when I think about like places like Wyoming, I think about bison. Um, yeah. There was a really big bison conservation effort in recent years where people were trying to repopulate the American bison so that it didn't go the way of the buffalo. And apparently it was very successful. Now it's to the point where there's initiative there's initiatives in Wyoming to help control the bison population. Oh my god. Where they end up having to cull uh, anywhere between 600 and 900 animals every year. So uh that's crazy. Yeah. Enjoy those bison burgers but not too much. Um <laughs> uh, all right, now for the more interesting uniquely Wyoming Fun facts. All right. First, there are apparently only two escalators in the entire state. Two escalators? Yep. (laughs) I kept coming across this weird fact about how there's only two escalators in the entire state of Wyoming. And I'm like, there's more than that in our local mall. Yeah, right. That's (laughs) wow. There's more than that at the Orlando airport. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm like, there's really, I'm like, there's no other airports, so there's no no escalators in airports. But yeah, apparently there are only two sets of escalators in the entire state. Both of them are located in Casper, Wyoming. Both are located in one place too. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Modernity in Casper, Wyoming. <laughs> What else is fun about Wyoming? Oh, so there's also only one public four-year 
educational institution in Wyoming, and it is the University of Wyoming, very fittingly, located in Laramie. Oh. So if someone tells you that they went to university in Wyoming, there's a pretty darn good chance that they went to the University of Wyoming and that they are rooting for the UOY Cowboys. Huh. In relation to college, Wyoming was the last state in the union to raise the legal drinking age from 19 to 21. Wow. Yeah. I always thought it was Louisiana for some reason, but it was actually Wyoming. They didn't uh, officially make the drinking age 21 until 1988. Okay. All right. Uh, There's two of the largest coal mines in the world are located in Wyoming. And they are both in the Powder River Basin. Coal is apparently a big business in Wyoming with about 40% of the U.S.'s domestic supply coming out of mines located in Wyoming. That is true. Hmm, Interesting. Did not know that. I only know it because of my research for my story. Oh, see, ahead of the game. Uh, And then my last fun fact, which I think is actually kind of interesting. So Wyoming is landlocked, of course. It touches six other states uh, in its very square shape. But it is home to dozens of islands. Really? There are actually, yeah, there are actually 32 islands within uh, Wyoming. Most of them are located on either the Green River, Yellowstone Lake, or on Jackson Lake. So there's also plenty of lakes in Wyoming, too. I should have maybe hinted at that first. But it's, it's <laughs> yeah, not something that you islands. think of with a landlocked state. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So those are my fun facts for for Wyoming. I thought they were kind of, you know, they said a good, like, experience uh, for us to dive into some more more detailed exploration of the the beautiful equality state. That's just, like, not a sexy nickname. I'm sorry. I know it should be, but it's just not. I think equality is very sexy, Nicole. I'll have you know. I think equality is sexy, but the (laughs) equality state, it does nothing for me. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's got nothing on the show me state, that's for sure. Ooh, girl. Huh. Okay, now that I've I've laughed like uh, Gracie Lou Freebush from uh, Miss Congeniality, I think we're good. <laughs> All right, should I get rolling into my story? Yeah, let's do it. All right. My story for this week takes place in Gillette, Wyoming. But before I tell you about Gillette, I want to tell you about my original idea for a story and why I'm a little angry. I had wanted to do a story on at least one of the missing indigenous people in Wyoming because there just isn't a lot of news coverage about them. But guess what? Between the years 2011 and 2020, at least 710 indigenous people went missing in Wyoming, yet I could not find a single story about any of them. I had no names to go off of. I had nothing at all, which made me want to do it even more. But alas, I had no information, so this is what we got this week, and I shall now tell you about Gillette. That's absolutely nuts yep. that you, like, even, like, there's no public information available that you could actually have put a name to any of the missing people. That's really messed up. Exactly. Anywho, Gillette is in Campbell County, where it is also the county seat. It's over in the northeast section of this very square state. I feel like once we got out west, they were just like, you know what? Just make everything a square or rectangle. Anyway, Gillette is also known as the energy capital of the nation because it produces around 35% of our coal. 
It also produces oil and coal bed methane gas. It was founded in 1891, again because of the railroad, because that's just a big thing. It's had a massive population boom, just like Minot, because of the fossil fuel. Its population went up by 48% within just 10 years. Wow. Yep. It has an area of 23.17 square miles and a population of around 32,030. The population here is a really interesting thing because there was even a psychological study done here on something they called the Gillette Syndrome, which was a study done on, quote, social disruption that can occur in a community due to a rapid population growth, end quote. Huh. Yeah. You never you never really think like adding more people into like your neighborhood would cause more social disconnect, but I guess it makes sense because basically there's a ton of strangers that you don't know. Exactly. And then your whole um just everything about the community can change from that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they love their art here in Gillette and they do something called the Avenues of Art program where they pay artists to display their sculptures that they have for sale. Since 2004, they have shown 289 pieces. They also have an annual event that goes along with this called the Donkey Creek Festival, where the art is displayed and you can meet the artists. It takes place in June and is free to attend. They also have a concert, car and motorcycle show, disc golf tournament, and a 5K. This all takes place at the local college called Gillette College. But you aren't here for art. You're here for murder. Damn straight. This is the story of John Trover. Okay. Tell me more about John. I will. Just you wait. (laughs) Our story begins on the morning of December 5th, 1998, when a police patrol car is driving down the road, and they see this car on fire and a couple of guys standing outside of it beating the flames. The police stop and assess the scene and ask what's going on. The men near the car say that they found the car like this and stopped to help, but there was no one inside. Hmm. Moments later, the police just hear this woman scream and see a woman coming toward them from the woods nearby begging for help. She looks out of sorts and she's in her underwear. Oh. After calling. I'm sorry, did you say what time of year it was? Uh, December. Okay. So freezing yeah, cold in <laughs> Wyoming. Yeah, in her underwear. After calming her down a little, they get her to talk normally and she's able to tell them what's going on because at this point, they have a mostly naked lady and a burning truck and just don't know what to think. Yeah, I can sympathize with that dilemma. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> burning trucks and naked ladies must be Tuesday. Um <laughs> So the woman's name was Cheryl Trover, and she was a local school teacher at Campbell County High School. She tells them that someone had broken into her house last night. She didn't get a good look at him because he was wearing a ski mask, coveralls, and cowboy boots. She also described him as having dark skin. Okay. She says the mysterious man broke into the home, shot and killed her husband, and then tied up her kids before dragging her off in the family truck. They drove for a while before she was able to get herself free of her kidnapper and run into the woods to hide. Hmm. She then tells police that the intruder said her children would be next and starts freaking out again, as any mother would uh, when her kids might be in danger. So then 
Sherry was sent to the hospital where they cataloged her injuries, which included some cigar burns on her arms. And they also did a rape kit on her as well. But the results were negative. She had seen her kids last around 10 that previous night. She says the intruder broke in around an hour after that. Okay. The police follow up on this by checking the house to make sure the kids are safe. And when they get there, they find the two kids tied with rope to a bed and their hands tied to the top of the bed with duct tape. Once they knew the kids were okay, they see this trail of blood on the floor, which leads them to the basement, which is where they find John Trover. He had been shot twice, once in the head and once in the arm. Here's the weird part, though. He had also been stabbed repeatedly. What? That's okay. You think one or the other, pick one. Uh, It was weird and troubling, to say the least. With shootings, it's usually just that someone wants you dead. But with stabbings, it's more personal. This Mm -hmm. isn't every case, but it's a rule of thumb thing. So to have both happen just seems super crazy to me. According to the people in town, John was a nice, normal guy. He did something with the coal mine in town as an accountant. And there really wasn't anything too crazy about him. The same went for Cheryl. She was just this normal school teacher lady. And their neighbors said, yeah, they were good people and good neighbors. Nothing scandalous, no skeletons in any closets that anyone knew about. It just all seemed so random. So prior to the break-in that night, John and Cheryl had been out bowling with friends, and they seemed to be having a great night, completely unaware that in just a few short hours, one of them would be dead. There was one piece of information, however, that seemed to allude to something sinister. Apparently, John had been getting threatening phone calls from someone while he was at work. It had been happening for six months before the murder, but John wasn't too worried about it. He had just assumed it was some weird prank caller. That's weird. Like, six months is a long time. I guess they probably weren't that frequent, I'm guessing. Uh, It seemed to be happening a lot. Oh, that's that's disturbing. That's not normal. No, (laughs) That's not a prank caller. No, I would have told the police, but, I mean, to each their own, I guess. Um, So he was just, he was really sure this was just a prank caller. Uh, The police did want to check into this, though, because there was a talk of closing down the mine where he worked or it being Mm -hmm. sold. So that could lead to a possible motive. According to the episode of a show that I had never heard of before, Schoolhouse Rocked, which, yes, I had a lot Mm -hmm. of trouble searching for because it's way too close to Schoolhouse Rock. Yeah, someone didn't think that that SEO through at all. No, not (laughs) at all. So, John said the caller sounded like Darth Vader in the reenactment, but that could have just been for the show. Uh, If that Mm -hmm. was the case in real life, though, to me, that would mean the caller was using a voice modulator and disguising him or herself. Mm -hmm. So, the one call that they used said, no one gets off scot-free. You ruined my life and you're going to pay. The police believed from the way... The caller, the caller sounded that he had every intention of following through with his threats. Now, before his death, John did not report these calls to the police because he honestly just thought it was someone messing with him, and he didn't take it seriously at all. If it had been me, I know I would have said something because the caller said he knew where John lived, which is something I would not fuck around with 
at all. Mm-mm. No, thank you. To add to the craziness with these calls, Cheryl also told the police that there had been someone watching her. She had seen a guy in her backyard and around the neighborhood just staring at her, which is fucking creepy. What the? Yeah, that's. mm, Yeah. Nope. And the scariest part about it, though, was that the way Sherry would describe this guy is the exact same description she gave to the police, coveralls and cowboy boots. Oh. So after this, the police did get calls from people in the neighborhood saying that they'd also been seeing someone they didn't know around the area. Um, And, like, they confirmed, like, this, like, friends that, you know, they're like, yeah, she's been talking about this guy. I don't know what's going on, you know? hmm There was another disturbing piece of information the police were able to suss out. Remember how I said no skeletons in the closet, right? Yeah. Well... There might have been one. Oh, goodness. John and Sherry were friends with a couple down the street from them named John and Susan Riley. The couple spent a lot of time together, and Susan ended up suspecting her husband of having an affair with Sherry. Mm-hmm. He was the principal at the high school where Sherry worked, and Susan said she would, uh, she would catch John looking at Sherry and just knew something was going on. John, and that's John Trover, since now they have the same first name, thanks for making it confusing people, (laughs) seemed to think nothing of it, which seems to be his thing. Threatening phone calls? No problem. Just someone being dumb. Wife having an affair? Ridiculous. Uh, Is his middle name Cleopatra because he seems like the queen of denial? Apparently. (laughs) Jesus, he's going to invent eyeliner while he's at it. (laughs) John, Um, you're so cosmopolitan. (laughs) sherry would stay later at school some nights tutoring students and doing other work with john riley yep he should have believed this one because sherry was totally having an affair and it had been going on for four years wow that's like that's like that's more than some people's uh marriages last that's nuts i don't even know exactly So, like, I guess the major benefit to this affair is that there's no possible way that she can call out the wrong name during sex, right? So that's good. John! John! (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, with this information, police do begin to see Sherry in a different light. She's been having this affair for four years. When does it stop being an affair, and when do you want to start making it a real thing? Mm -hmm. Now, police had already been to Sherry's house since that's where John's body was and where they found the kids tied up. But with the knowledge of an affair with John Riley, they knew they had to search his house too. Who's to say that he isn't responsible for this, right? Well, they go to his house, and he lets them in without a search warrant, feeling he has nothing to hide. But the police do end up finding something, and it's a big something. They find the murder weapon. Wait. So, John... The other John was shot and stabbed, though, right? Yes. So they find the gun, at least. Oh, okay. So I don't actually know how this was obtained because the resources on the internet were pretty bare bones, which is why I purchased an episode on YouTube of a show I'd never heard of, which I told you about, which still didn't do a great job of leading me along the paths of of the detectives, honestly. 
Yeah. Um, so it's kind of hard to piece together what happened here. But uh, when questioning John Riley, the police do see that he has a solid alibi for the murder since he was out of town when it occurred. Hmm. The police are probably a little confused as to how the murder weapon ended up in his house, but not for long because when asked if anyone else had a key to his house, John tells police that the Trovers have one. How convenient. Exactly. He then asked to make a phone call, and he calls Sherry right away, telling her that the police are at his house and asking, what did you do? So what do you think happened here, Nicole? I feel like Sherry is framing her longtime lover, or maybe his wife, with the murder of her husband, so she can be free of him without the messiness of a divorce. I don't know about the frame job. It could have just been a place to hide the gun. But that's right. Uh, Sherry Trover murdered her husband. And it wasn't any spur of the moment thing either. By all accounts, she had been planning this for months. Let me guess at least six months when the threatening phone call started. Oh, yeah, definitely. She was the one calling John's work and disguising her voice. She told everyone about some strange man wearing the exact things the supposed intruder wore the night of the murder, setting this whole thing up quite meticulously for however long. Oh, and those cigar burns on her arm turned out to be self-inflicted. Mm-hmm. So if you're curious as to her motive, it's quite simple. She wanted to leave her husband for John Riley, but she had two children with John Trover, and she was worried about losing them in the divorce. John Trover had been married once before, and he had won sole custody of the child that they had together. So Sherry feared that the same thing would happen to her and thought the best way to do this was to you know, dress up in a ski mask and coveralls, break into her own house, cut the power, tie up her own kids, kill her husband, burn herself with cigars, drive away, set the car on fire, and wait for the police to arrive in her underwear. I mean, you can't say that she didn't wasn't a planner. Exactly. What the fuck, though? <laughs> I know, I know. Nuts. Now, once this information was made public and this case was eventually closed, All the friends and neighbors said that that was not the Sherry that they knew. But it just goes to show you that you can't ever really know anyone. And that's the scariest thing of all. And you're probably still wondering, though, what about the blood trail leading to the basement and why the shooting and the stabbing? Mm -hmm. Well, I do have an answer. Sherry wasn't great with guns. And it would seem that she loaded the gun with the wrong ammo which then led to a big physical fight between herself and her husband leading throughout the house. Whoops. Yeah. So now let's get back to Sherry for a moment here. So she gets that call from John Riley talking about the police and she knows the jig is up at this point. She was staying with a friend since her house is a crime scene Mm -hmm. and asked for some alone time after this phone call where she found another gun and shot herself. And that is how the story abruptly ends. Oh, wow. Yeah. So one thing that I found really interesting about this statement uh, made in one of my sources, comparing this story to a murder mystery plot, but better written. That part made me giggle quite a bit. They said, it's just like a murder mystery, except better written. (laughs) I I guess. Because sure. holy shit, I mean, like she went through a lot to kill this to kill her husband and try to pull it off, and it still didn't work. Mm-hmm. 
So I hope everyone enjoyed my story and I hope that it was cohesive enough. I didn't know how to structure it this week. And like I said, sources were scarce. But what did you think, Nicole? It's definitely one of the most oddly well-planned, but not well-planned murders I've heard in a long time. It's like quite the scheme to get away with murder. Exactly. I mean, that's just nuts. Yeah. And I feel like it it's interesting how quickly it fell apart too. So it's like she spent all this time planning and like setting it up. But then when it came to like the actual execution and like really thinking about it, like how this looked to police, blah, 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 all those things. It's like she spent five minutes on that. But like, you know, she probably spent a long time trying to figure out what to wear for the home invasion and all of that, that goodness. Well, the thing of it is too, and I didn't have an exact timeline. So I'm piecing this together from a little bit of information that I saw here and there. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that this crime was actually solved in about 48 hours. Huh. That's crazy. So even all that planning for months, she still got pinched pretty quick. Yeah. That's like, good good job, Sherry. Bad job, Sherry. Bad Sherry. Exactly. Yes. So my sources for this week were an episode of Schoolhouse Rocked titled Red Rum. APnews.com, Deseret.com, MyLifeOfCrime.wordpress.com, Wikipedia, Archive.SeattleTimes.com, and Independent.ie. Cool. I just thought that one was too nuts not to tell, so had to happen. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, thanks for sharing that very odd story, Ian. I appreciate it. Um, I guess we'll take a quick break and come back for a new story. And then I can dive into my strange and unusual tale. All righty. I guess we'll see everyone after the break. And we're back. We are back. Um, I have a weird news article for you guys that I think you might like. Okay. This one comes from Inside Edition. Uh-oh. Look out, world. Yes. <laughs> and the headline is, Louisiana man opens trailer park for swingers. Bring your house and share your spouse. <laughs> wow. What a tagline. What a tagline. Oh, <laughs> It's already starting good. The T-Boys Swinger Trailer Park is currently under construction in the small town of Memo. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Louisiana. For couples who are not monogamous, a new vacation spot is opening in central Louisiana. T-Boys Swinger Trailer Park is the brainchild of David. I can't pronounce his last name either, so we're going to skip it. Whose motto for this site is bring your house and share your spouse. Uh, The resident of Mamo, a town of roughly 3,000 residents in Evangeline Parish, said he came up with the idea after learning that the population of people who share their partners was much bigger than he ever imagined. I come up with ideas for fun. I like to think of some odd things. I know some folks who partake in this lifestyle, he told Inside Edition Digital on Wednesday. (laughs) And he wanted to do something helpful, he said. I feel like I'm helping people. But not a swinger. I'm not a swinger, but I'm doing something for someone that appreciates it, he said. Since he created a Facebook page for the planned site, he has been overwhelmed by responses, both positive and negative. More than a thousand people have contacted him, he said. 
I have people who want to build cafes, who want to enhance it for the better. The phone rings every two minutes. He's also taken some flack from people who think the notion of sharing spouses is a sin. Mm-hmm. Of course. A lot of people in my community hate me right now. Some people always have something to say, no matter what it's about, he said. It's this terrible stigma people have in their mind that these people are doing something terribly wrong. The controversy doesn't really bother him, he said. I'm good at being the, uh, I think it's supposed to be, I'm good at being the ass of a joke. They gave a bad name to trailer parks and they give a bad name to swingers. He says his facility will hopefully open on Memorial Day weekend in 2022. The site will be more than a campground or an amusement park than a traditional mobile home park with small cabins for rent and public activities. Though he firmly respects the rights of couples to couple with whomever they choose, he's not a swinger himself. I'm a happily married man, he said. I love the idea of owning it and creating it, but that's not what I'm in it for. Well, I guess he's just a saint among men for opening a swinger so. trailer park. Yeah, it well. sounds it sounds like uh almost like not so much like a neighborhood like playing community. It definitely sounds more like a campground style. Damn. Yeah, very much so. I, I love the idea. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. I love the inside uh, editions, like we gotta cover this. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Well, they have a whole section of news that's offbeat news that I found a few good articles on. So I've, I've stored some up for future dates. Bless their heart. Bless it. All right, Nicole. Do you have a story for us? I do have a story, and I'm pretty excited about it, Eden. Awesome. So today we're heading to Douglas, a city in Converse County in eastern Wyoming. With a population of 6,300 residents, the city covers about five square miles and is located along the banks of the North Platte River. Since the late 1860s, the area has attracted settlers due to its close location to Fort Fetterman, which was the U.S. Army supply point for operations in the Wyoming Territory. Douglas itself was incorporated in September 1887 with a population of 805 residents, and really this incorporation was a result of the extension of the Fremont, Elkhorn, and Missouri Valley Railroads through central Wyoming. Like all things out west, it leads to to railroads. Of course. Interestingly, the town was actually named after Stephen Douglas, the noted Illinois senator and participant in the famed Lincoln-Douglas debates. Alrighty. Now, the city lies along a number of historic trails as well. That includes the Oregon, the Bozeman, and the Old Overland Trail. And this intersection of trails and railroads led to Douglas becoming a hub for shipping, especially when it came to the cattle and sheep industry. I mean, it's Wyoming for God's sake. We all saw Brokeback Mountain, right? A lot (laughs) of cattle. (laughs) Also, a side note, I did discover in my research that there is no mountain called Brokeback in Wyoming. Sorry, guys. Oh, damn. (laughs) Disappointing. (laughs) Anyway, so aside from being a a shipping hub for the cattle and sheep industry, Douglas also became a center for American horse culture as a result of all this cowboying that was going on around it. Uh, It's still the location of the Wyoming State Fair, which is held every summer and is well known for its rodeo and animal competitions, especially uh, any of those like roping competitions, horse agility, things like that. 
Fun, fun. While the cattle industry is still important in Douglas, it's kind of taken a backseat to more modern resource-related industries. Today, Douglas is known as an area that's rich with natural gas, oil, and coal, as well as uranium. Plus, it's the gateway to Ayers Natural Bridge Park, which is located at the bottom of a stunning Red Rock Canyon, and it features some of Wyoming's natural beauty, so much so that it's actually a favorite local spot for outdoor weddings and company picnics. Okay. Douglas might just seem like any other small town or small city in in Wyoming, but it also holds a really distinct honor. It is the home of one of America's most elusive and unique cryptids. Oh. The fearsome jackalope. Oh, the jackalope. Okay. (laughs) I take it from your reaction. You're you're familiar with the jackalope? Yes, I am. (laughs) Do you remember watching those weird jackalope sketches on like the America's Funniest People in the early 90s? I don't know. I think I found about jackalopes a little later than that, so probably Um, not. Yeah, it's like seared into my memory, along with Dave Coulier giving the jackalope one of his weird high-pitched voices, and it was this like unsettling but also weirdly compelling uh, skit that I loved as a child. So naturally, when I discovered that the jackalope originated in Douglas, I had to do it. Had to cover it. I don't blame you. (laughs) So if you are not familiar with this creature, the jackalope can best be described as a jackrabbit with deer or antelope horns on its head. Uh, I learned from the City of Douglas website that the jackalope is one of the rarest animals in the world. It once spread across much of the American West, but is now only found in the vast high plains around Douglas. Weird as fuck. Yep. Also weird as fuck is some of the life cycle and mating information I found about a jackalope. The jackalope is born as the result of a mating between a jackrabbit and the now extinct pygmy deer. It was initially first reported by John Coulter in Wyoming. Uh, John Coulter was actually one of the men on the Lewis and Clark expedition and was known as one of the first mountain men to explore the Yellowstone region. Now, according to not only Coulter, but some other sources, the antlered species of rabbit are brownish in color. They weigh about three to five pounds, and they move with lightning speeds of up to 90 miles per hour. They're said to be vicious when attacked, and they use their antlers to fight. And because of this fighting style, they've sometimes been called the warrior rabbit or the killer rabbit. Okay. Well, that took (laughs) a dark turn. Yes, it did. What else do you expect on our show? That's true. (laughs) Another facet of the jackalope that also contributes to its rarity is, is the fact that they can only breed during lightning flashes. According to the Douglas City website, it also let me know that some of the jackalope's other unique characteristics include their fondness for whiskey. It's their favorite drink. Me too, jackalopes. Me too. (laughs) Their uncanny ability to mimic human sounds. Apparently, they will listen to people around campfires and then mimic the people, sometimes asking for whiskey, sometimes calling out things like, There it goes when they're being hunted to divert the hunters off of their trail. And then the other thing, which is extremely interesting about jackalopes, is their milk. 
Now, jackalope's milk is apparently naturally homogenized due to their powerful and quick leaping skills. And it is known to have amazing aphrodisiac qualities, because what else? As well as lots of medicinal powers. Now, the tricky thing about jackalope milk is that females can only be milked when they've been lulled to sleep belly up, usually as a result of feeding them far too much whiskey than their little bunny bodies can handle. The story gets more and more ridiculous every (laughs) second that you tell it. I love it. (laughs) You're welcome. Now, Eden, I know you're saying to yourself, dang it, I wish I could get some jackalope milk, but I don't have the time to lull a lady jackalope to sleep and rub her belly and give her copious amounts of whiskey. Who does? I know. Who does? We're, We're modern people. We're busy. Luckily for us, the Douglas Visitor Center can supply you with your very own bottle of jackalope milk for a reasonable price, in fact. You can also pick up your own jackalope hunting licenses. However, there are specific requirements that you need to meet in order to be licensed to hunt a jackalope. You need to have a demonstrable IQ of less than 72, and you can only use that hunting license on the hours of midnight to 2 a.m. on July 31st each year. Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay, so all of that sounds a bit... mm, ridiculous and much right yes (laughs) well that's because it's all legend that's really just tall tales homegrown right in douglas however it's kind of based around a little bit of truth and some old legends about killer rabbits that people have seen for centuries as well as some fun with taxidermy that apparently people just can't resist doing because people will sew the antlers on Mm mm-hmm So for ages, humans have been entertaining themselves with tales about animals that are crossbred with the traits of other animals. And rabbits, since they're such a common animal in most parts of the world that humans encounter every day, have often been the stars of such stories. In the 13th century in Persia, for example, uh, a rabbit with a single horn, almost like a unibunny, was depicted and it was known as the... Almira. According to legend, this mythical beast lives on a mysterious island in the Indian Ocean. And it was gifted to Alexander the Great when he killed a large dragon that was eating the livestock of the people who lived on the island. Okay, so one um one cryptid and another cryptid. Great. Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. Double your money, folks. Yep, yep. In Sweden, you'll find a fictional creature called a scavander, which has the hindquarters and hind legs of a European hare and the wings, back, and tail of a wood grouse. Eden, since I know you like Swedish and Scandinavian things, I have I a fun do. fact for you. Unless it's Ludifisk. I mean, that's um, fair. <laughs> what is your fun fact? The word scavander is now a colloquial term in Sweden to mean a bad compromise, like a raw deal. Interesting. Or you can use it as like a combination of contradicting elements. There's actually a whole line of these weird like truck bus hybrid things they use in Sweden that they call scavanders. Okay, that makes sense. (laughs) I like it. I see what you did there, Sweden. Yeah, I thought you'd like that. Uh, Moving on to Germany. So Germany also loves these weird hybrid, hybrid bunnies as well. In medieval Bavarian folklore, there is a creature called a Walpertinger. It's an animal that lives exclusively in the alpine forests of Bavaria and Baden-Württemberg in southern Germany. 
The Walpert Tinger has been described as having various animal parts, usually wings, antlers, of course, because who doesn't love a good antler, tail and fangs, and all of them are attached to the body of a small mammal, like a squirrel or rabbit. Uh, This little creature is so popular in Bavarian folklore, uh, especially when it is depicted with the head of a hare and maybe the tail of a squirrel and deer antlers, that they would make stuffed Walpert Dingers as souvenirs for folks who visited the Black Forest. You could find them in inns or sold in taverns, things like that. Now, not to be left out, Northern Germany also has their own version of Weird Forest Bunny, and that's called the Rasselbach. Now, the Rasselbach also features the head and body of a rabbit, as well as the antlers of a roe deer with with large, pointy canine teeth in its mouth. So it's basically like a fang jackalope, if you will. So it's the bunny from Monty Python, but with horns. Yes. Yes. Yes, it is. That is very accurate. (laughs) Now, you can find the Rosselbach in the region of northern Germany that includes the Thurgian Forest and also the Harz Mountains. Now, if we take a jump over to the New Worlds, you'll find that in Mexico, the Hoicho people tell tales and create art that includes a horned rabbit. Now, according to their legends, the horned rabbit was actually the animal that gave the deer, one of the most sacred animals to the Hoicho people, its horns. Also, their ancestors, the Aztecs, paired the rabbit and deer together in legends and in their calendar day signs as either twins, representing brothers, or even the sun and the moon. Wow, so, so this goes back pretty far. Yeah, and a lot of different human cultures all over the world have talked about this like horned rabbit. Now, America's entry into this folkloric melange is the jackalope, which can trace its history directly back to Douglas, Wyoming, and to Ralph and Doug Hetrick. Now, the Hetrick brothers had learned taxidermy by mail order correspondence, and they had opened up a taxidermy shop together in Douglas. And in 1934, after the two spent a day hunting jackrabbits, they arrived back at their shop realizing they were late to dinner. So Doug just kind of tossed the bunnies they had killed into the shop for them to come back to after they had dinner. So when they got back to dinner, they noticed that one of the jackrabbits had landed next to a set of antlers. Absolutely tickled by the sight, Doug suggested they just mount the rabbit that way with the horns. And thus... (sighs) The humble jackalope was born. (laughs) Very nice. (laughs) Now, it turns out that more than just Doug, Trick thought that the jackalope was hilarious. Uh, A local man named Roy Ball, who happened to own Douglas's Labonte Hotel, purchased the mounted jackalope for $10 shortly after it was made. And Ball had that jackalope on display until it was stolen in 1977. Oh, wow. Yeah, he had a long time. Stolen jackalope. I know, that's so wrong. (laughs) No, how dare you take one of our most sacred creatures. But apparently there was a little bit of jackalope fever in the 1970s. Like I found like a whole bunch of articles like in New York Times about it. I was like, okay, who knew? That was the time for hybrid bunnies. Okay. That's crazy. (laughs) Now the Hedrick brothers, after they had sold this first jackalope, continued to make more of them over the next 70 years. And the the people who lived in Douglas loved it. So they embraced all these crazy tall tales about the creature. And it continues to circulate in Douglas and the rest of Wyoming today. Um, 
Wyomingites love this zany little creature. Since 2005, the state legislator has considered three separate bills to make the jackalope the official mythological creature of Wyoming. Oh, my God. I know. Like, side note, I'm pretty torn about this one personally. Like, just either pass it and get on with passing more important stuff rather than having somebody reintroduce it and waste more time again and again. Exactly. And more taxpayer money. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, they wouldn't be the first ones to have a mythological creature as like a state mascot. Well, at least I know this works for countries because the national animal of Wales is the Welsh dragon, the green dragon mm-hmm. you see on mm-hmm. their flag. And the national animal of Scotland is a unicorn. Oh, yeah, that makes sense because you see it a lot on, on like uh, items that are made in Scotland and stuff like that, like sterling silver and stuff will have exactly. a little unicorn and stamp. I see, I see a lot of kilt pins with unicorns on them, too. Oh. See, Wyoming, it's okay. Pass that law. And then yeah, it's, there's precedent. There's precedent. And then the other weird thing is like I kind of realized as I was like having this argument with myself, like this is where we get weird laws from about like don't sing in bathtubs and don't leave your sheep in your vehicle and sheep around. So exactly. Oh, the yeah. sheep around. <laughs> Exactly. I'm like, do we want more sheep rounds or less sheep rounds? I don't know. <laughs> All right. Tangent done. I promise. But how about your sign and cosine? <laughs> oh, math <Nacho>. humor. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice, my friend. Very We're nice. so dumb. <laughs> All right, Eden. So we firmly established that jackalope isn't real, right? Yes. But kicker. Is it, Nicole? Well, what would you say if I told you that what is real is people seeing rabbits with horns in the woods of Europe, Asia, and America? I know the answer to this, but I don't want to spoil anything. <laughs> okay. So uh, let me tell you a little little story about a man named Richard Shope. Now, Richard Shope was an American virologist in the 1930s, and he worked on identifying viruses that occurred in both animals and in humans. In 1931, while working at Rockefeller University, he helped discover that swine flu was actually caused by the same bacterium as the human flu, and he was able to link the flu strain that he discovered in swine flu to the influenza pandemic, the strain that caused the influenza pandemic in 1819. He studied yellow fever outbreaks to understand the pathology of that virus, which all contributed to all contributed to aiding in the discovery of a vaccine. And soon Richard Slope developed an expert reputation as this kind of virus hunter. Like he was the guy you would call when you encountered something weird and you wanted to figure out how it fit into the overall scientific knowledge of what we knew about viruses and bacteria. Now, in 1933, Shope is reading a newspaper report about hunters in northwestern Idaho who shot several cotton-tailed rabbits that had these horn-like protrusions on their face and body. Intrigued, he headed out to investigate. And he discovered that these protrusions were actually Cartinous carcinomas, in other words, tumors that were made from keratin, the same stuff mm-hmm. that makes scales, nails, hooves, claws, all that stuff. And in appearance, these dead rabbits actually resembled the legendary jackalope or walpertinger. 
Have you ever seen these pictures? Should I send you one? They're freaking creepy. I have seen a few of them. Because uh, I know there actually is a jackalope at the, uh, I think it's the Smithsonian. I'm going to send you this creepy photo that I found. And I uh, I can post it on our Instagram if people are interested. But take a look at this. This is like what the cottontails had that Chope was examining. Oh, yeah. That's fun. It looks like a rabbit that really enjoys punk rock and wanted to do its hair in Liberty Spikes today. And then also decided to do the same with its beard. So, yeah, very weird. I don't know how to describe it other than that, but very, very weird. <laughs> Can you imagine, though, like you're just in the forest and you see a rabbit like that and you're like, what the hell is that? Yeah. Well, that's kind of what has probably led to the legends of the jackalope and Walpendinger. So Richard Soap realized that this seems odd. It seems a little bit like cancer. So he tested one of his theories, which was that some cancers and tumors can be caused by a virus. And after a little bit of investigation, he was able to isolate a virus in the rabbits that the hunters had found. And he experimented a little bit further and was able to confirm that other rabbits exposed to the same virus also developed these cancerous tumors. The Shope papilloma virus. Exactly. The Shope papilloma virus is what they named it in honor of his discovery. And it's actually super fascinating because his research on this topic led to the first mammal model of how cancer can be caused by a virus. Which is interesting. Yeah, because you always think of cancer being sort of like exposure to something like radiation. Yes. Um, so his discovery in turn led to not only this deeper understanding of this mechanism that causes abnormal cell growth that's triggered by a virus, but it also led to a deeper understanding of other papilloma-related viruses like HPV, which yes. is the human papilloma virus. Which it has really scary, scary um, – what's the word I'm looking for? It's like one in two people. Yeah. Yes, it's very pervasive. Many, many people have it. There are lots of strands of it. Not all strands are uh, cancerous, but it is still viral. And a lot of times your body will fight it off by itself. But then other people mm -hmm. get stuck mm -hmm. with things like genital warts and other things like that, which is not fun. And then it can also cause cervical cancer later on for women. And yeah, big old mess. It's also... Uh, it's also something that causes a lot of throat yeah. and neck cancers. Uh, so good news story, though, is that because of Richard Slope's work in the 1930s and subsequent decades that have built upon his work, we understand these viral cancers a little bit more. And it actually led to the development of the HPV vaccine and other antiviral cancer treatments. That's really cool. All from jackalopes. I know. All from jackalopes. Who knew? That is the, like, while jackalopes are not real, who knew how helpful they have been to us as humans? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so that's that's my weird story for this week uh, and about the cryptid that, that wasn't a cryptid, but actually is a real thing. So, yeah. It's so weird because at first I was like, oh my God, she's doing the jackalope. But I'm like, wait, that was like pretty much an internet hoax. And then I'm like, oh, but then there's also the real ones sort of. Kind of. Maybe that's what she's going into. Yeah. So that's awesome. Yeah. I enjoyed it very much. 
Good, I want I'm a glad. pet jackalope of my own. <laughs> uh, my sources for this tale include uh, Wikipedia, Mental Floss, thecityofdouglas.org, onlyinterstate.com, legendsofamerica.com, howstuffworks.com, and the New York Times. Thank you very much for that, Nicole. And thank you, Jackalopes. Thank you. I'm so excited. I can get Gardasil now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I guess that is the end of our show for this week. Um, If you liked what you heard, please feel free to uh, like and subscribe or review us uh, on your favorite uh, podcast listening app. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can do that by sending us a email. We are roadside horror show at gmail.com, or you can stop by our website, which is roadside show.podbean.com. You can also look at our various social medias. We are on Facebook and Instagram at roadside horror show and Twitter at roadside horror. Uh, we'd like to thank E. Massey and Yox Rocks Design for our theme music and logo, respectively. Until next time, guys. Creep, creep on, on, creep, creep on. on.